gather together around the Word this morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John and chapter 2. John has laid before us the commandment that we love our brothers, to love the body of Christ. In verses 7 through 11, he writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Last week we focused on The one word uh, cause for stumbling, uh, scandalon in the Greek. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no scandalon. There is no cause for stumbling. We, We considered that word at great length and understand that a loving life is one that does not place hindrances to the Lord Jesus Christ in the way of others. We seek to love others well and as we do that, we will seek to not give offense that would push others away from Christ. If people are going to stumble, we want them to stumble over the goodness of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ and not over us, not over our preferences, not over the things that we think are so important, but over Christ himself. And many will stumble over him. Many will be ultimately destroyed because they refuse to turn in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to add levels of non-biblical teaching to what the Word, has to, Word of God has to say about who Christ is. And John goes on then to say, after encouraging us to love our brothers well and not to be a stumbling block to them, he goes on to say in verses 15 and 17, through 17, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now in between these two imperatives, to love the church and not love the world, there is this parenthetical encouragement. And I hope when you leave today, you are just as encouraged as I am, or all the more, because of this parenthetical. There's a lot of debate that surrounds this parenthetical. Uh, A lot of different definitions that people stumble over. But I believe that the purpose of this parenthetical passage between the loving of the church and not setting stumbling blocks and not loving the world is very clear. I think what is going on here is John is doing what a good pastor should do and he knows that he is on both sides leveling some hard truth. Some truth that if we are to actually live our lives in is not just going to be light and breezy. Truth that will take all of who we are. In fact, it will bring us to the end of who we are and we will find strength in 
Christ. Loving the church is not a light thing. Loving the church of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, Life Point, is not a light thing. It's not just lip service. It's not just saying, oh, how are you on a Sunday morning? Loving the church well will consume all of who you are. I believe that with my whole being. If, if, if we are called to follow Christ, and we are, and if loving the church well for His own glory consumed all of the life of Christ, how do we come to understand that loving the church well will cost us nothing? Will not be an inconvenience? Will not cause us to be broken at times? To love the body well and not to love the world will be counterintuitive to all fleshly natural logic of man. Knowing then that this will be difficult, John brings this pastoral encouragement yet, yet again. If loving well means leading others to Jesus and not throwing stumbling blocks in their way and not loving the world, the religious world or the secular world, well then John sets out to clear the path in this parenthetical phrase straight to the feet of Christ. He, he uses these verses 12 through 14 to aim solidly at our Redeemer yet again. So with that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's Word and stand to your feet and hear these words that John writes as an encouragement to all of us who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you today asking that you would write these eternal truths on all of our hearts, that we would not be distracted from this encouragement, but that our lives would be rooted on Christ and on all that he has done in securing our victory, in giving us freedom from sin, and in helping us to have access to no true fellowship with you. Father, would you stir in our hearts a greater desire to love the church well and not the world. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we come to this passage and we have to ask ourselves again, why this parenthetical? Why stop here? I mean, you've got some good momentum going, John. You've told us to love the church, to not set stumbling blocks. Why don't you just slide into telling us not to love the world. Those things go hand in hand. Why interrupt with this seemingly poetic device? Again, it's because John here is being pastoral. He is loving the body and he's loving you and I even today by encouraging us. He knows that when we lay difficult commandments before the body, we struggle and we tend to think, well, we can never do this. Uh, we can never live up to what you are commanding. Uh, we will ultimately be discouraged 
beyond actually seeking to live our lives in the imperatives that John has laid out. And so John comes here to reiterate what he's already told us and to point us back to Jesus and to remind us. He wants to comfort us. He wants to encourage us. But above all, he wants us to see that in these two imperatives, loving the brethren well and not loving the world, that we have no excuse for not heeding those commands. That we do have the strength to love well and to love the right things and to love for the glory of God. We are so full of excuses, are we not? There are so many people I was watching yesterday on Facebook, one of the arch heretics of our time. And the first five minutes of his soliloquy was that the Word of God is true and we should obey it. And then he went on to give about 20 qualifications as to what the word couldn't mean because those things would be offensive to our modern minds. We are always full of excuses. And when we come to these imperatives that are bookending this parenthetical phrase to love the church well and not to love the world, there's all kinds of qualifications. And the first and foremost that we would come to is we can't do that. We don't have the strength. And ultimately, in our own ability, that is true. We can't flee the world and love the church the way that John intends, the way that God calls us to, in our own strength. But in this position, part of why he's writing is to encourage us that we have been strengthened for this task. We tend in our day to think highly, and in every age, of people in certain positions, doctors, lawyers, bankers, you know, the successful ones. If you have a particular position, people will think differently about you. I think I've shared with you numerous times that if I'm on an airplane and somebody asks what I do for a living, my immediate response is communications. Because if I tell them my position, either I'm going to be in for a two-hour argument or two hours of learning how they are the next thing to Mother Teresa in their own right. And so I don't do that because uh, the, the position doesn't ultimately matter. And in here, what I, I think we find is an encouragement to be reminded that if you are here today and in, in an earthly sense, our society looks on your particular vocation or social position with great contempt, if you bear the name of Christian, there is no greater position in the world. There's no greater calling than to be a follower of Christ and to be called to love with all of your mind, all of your heart, all of your soul, Christ Himself, and to love your neighbor as yourself, to love the body of Christ truly. And so He comes here to remind us of our position and also to remind us that He has made provision for our success, that the provision for our successful living of the the life that we're called to is found in the power of Christ. Sometimes we can come to the point where we think loving the church is absolutely impossible. We can come to the point where we grow very weary in loving the church 
And we find it so natural to fall in love with the things of this world. We ask, can we actually thrive together? I mean, look at this ragtag group of people. We come from different backgrounds. We have different views on so many things. How can we genuinely love one another in our own day and age? Do you think that it's impossible to love the body of Christ? Do you think that that these statements where John comes to the church in the year 2021 and says, love your brothers in Christ, don't put a stumbling block down, and don't love the world. As he puts those two grand commands, imperatives before your life, do you think that he's just trying to rah-rah you and, and kind of pep you up a little bit? Or are these commands things that you can really live your life pursuing well? I think that he's writing so that we actually can love the church and we can live a life that brings glory to Christ doing that. I mean, to this point, He has written so that we may have joy. He's written so that we might have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. John has written so that we might not sin. And here, I don't think that he's writing that we really would be able to love the body of Christ well and flee the world and it's just some sort of kind of propping us up or some, side of, some sort of pipe dream. I think he really does, in our generation, want the body of Christ to love one another and for us not to love the world. And so he writes here to little children, to young men, and to fathers. And there's so much debate surrounding what these different categories mean. And commentators go on and on and on about what they must mean. And some will come and they they have a, a hermeneutic of total transfer that we must take these things literally. And he's really writing to children, children physically, and fathers, and to young men. I think that's nonsense. It's poetic and it's clear in my mind that that's not the right interpretation to this text. Others believe that we see children as being all Christians and then from there we divide out. He goes on speaking to fathers and to young young men in different categories. I think all of this misses the point of this text. Because I believe that the divisions between children and young men and fathers are less about the defined groups and more about the stages of our Christian walk. It's so obvious that this is a literary pivot in the text, that this is a literary device, that this is almost poetic in its encouragement. Again, John is the one that likes likes to paint uh, pictures with words, and that's what he's doing here. And so if we come and we want to tell only children certain truths here and only fathers certain truths here and rob others in the body of Christ of those truths, I think we've misinterpreted the text. You see, not only are the little children to know that their sins are forgiven. Beloved, if you are here today in Christ, you are to know that your sins are forgiven. Not only are the young men to know that they have overcome the evil one in Christ, but if you are here today in Christ, whatever condition you find yourself in any other definition, you have overcome the evil one in Him. See, I take the the view that these are poetic in reference to the steps and stages of the Christian life. 
The, the use of the words children, young men and fathers shows emphasis on the organic nature of the Christian life. That we're not just robots, that we're not just stamped into the kingdom and there's no growth. But that we start at one point and we go on to grow into young adulthood and then on to being senior adults in the faith. Here he is reminding the body, no matter their stage or their position in their walk of grace... That we have this wonderful thing called the Christian life. And that we're all growing in different points in different categories. He's reminding us of the basic Christian doctrine that he's already laid out in the, in, in the preface to what he's told us. And here he wants to circle around and remind us that the ability that we have to live out the command to love the body well and to flee from the world only comes from our position in Christ. It only becomes clear and possible because of who we are in Christ. And all of these things, all of these truths found in verses 12 through 14 are really foundational to our success in living out the imperatives that he has written. So what are those things? Well, first, he writes that we must know that our sins are forgiven. Look at verse 12 with me. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Hold on, technical difficulty. John is writing that we would know that our sins are forgiven. That we would be clear that we have been forgiven in Christ. And we need to consider that, I think, in the negative. Christians are not people who are hoping that their sins might one day possibly, kind of, sort of, if we really strain after it, be forgiven. Christians are not uncertain about forgiveness. They're not people trying to merit forgiveness in their own ability. Christians are people who know that they are forgiven. And this is foundational. We can't progress in our walk with Christ until we have this settled. We can't really claim the moniker of Christian until we know the foundational reality that our sin is forgiven totally in Christ. Christian people don't say, I hope that I will be forgiven. Maybe I can be forgiven. If I try hard enough, I might be forgiven. People who are Christians know that they have been forgiven infinitely through the work of Christ. What is this forgiveness based on? Is it based on our good performance? Is it based on our church membership? Is it based on our sincerity, on our good behavior? No, it is based on one thing and one thing alone. And that is the glory of Christ. Look what he writes here. Because your sins are forgiven. Why? For his name's sake. We are forgiven because of the perfect, full, and finished work of Christ alone. And as he calls us to love the church well and to flee the world, he wants us to be reminded in the battle for for our joy and fellowship with God the Father that our sins are forgiven. So the question this morning to you is do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Now there are, and this is arguable, but four different positions in knowing whether your sins are forgiven. One, you know your sins aren't forgiven and you don't care. 
Two, you think your sins are forgiven, but they really aren't. Three, you, you really want your sins to be forgiven, and you're trying really hard, and you're hoping that they will be forgiven. Or four, you know that your sin has been atoned for, that you are forgiven in Christ. Those are the positions. And so if, if we know that if we're in that last group, we know that the ground for our forgiveness is not simply Jesus loves me. Now Christ does love us. Amen? But that is, is, is not the ultimate ground of our forgiveness. The ultimate ground of our forgiveness is the righteousness of Christ. It is His holiness. It is For His own glory. The the foundation of our forgiveness doesn't come in anything that we do in any respect. It comes because of what Christ has done. Now I'm not arguing against the reality that in particular we ask for forgiveness and we come to repentance and, and, and we confess our sins all throughout the Christian life. But the forgiveness that we are granted and that we rest in even as we begin to pray knowing that He will forgive us is not because of what we've done. When we come to confess our sins, we dare not believe that Christ is forgiving us because of our confession. Christ is forgiving us because of His glory. Because of who He is and what He has set out to do before the very foundation of time. Because His glory will not be diminished in eternity. It was C.S. Lewis that said, a a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship Him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. The, The reality is, we don't ultimately diminish the glory of God, but we can be robbed of the joy of walking in fellowship and in light of the reality of our forgiveness as we continue stubbornly in our sins. But the foundation of our forgiveness is not in anything that we do. If we are in Christ, we have the joy of knowing that we are forgiven not because of our exceeding worth, but because of the worth of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what he's already told us. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is there, our advocate, remember, pleading His blood, not indifferent to the Father, but in accordance, part of what Brian said this morning, in accordance with Pactus Salutum, accordance, uh, in a, within accordance of the plan that was set down before the foundation of the world, and He is pleading His blood and His righteousness on our behalf for His own glory. And he has prayed that you and I, in the fullness of time, would come to behold that glory. You see, my sin has been dealt with not by my effort, not by my goodness, not by my confessions, but by his death on the cross. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, but... He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
We can know, beloved, this morning with all assurance that our sins have been taken away. That's no light thing. I think if we just stopped right here, this is enough for us to worship for the rest of eternity. Our sin has been taken away. Jay Clatworthy's sin has been paid for. Brian Kendrick, your sin has been paid for. Sarah Cam Braxton, your sins have been taken away. In particular. He didn't pay for some of it. He did not pay for part of it. He didn't just put a down payment. He did not absorb the sins that you're really sorry for, leaving the rest. Jesus paid it all. He's atoned for every ounce of your sin, every sin that you thought about committing, every sin that you will commit, every sin that you have held near and dear to your heart that no one else knows about. He has paid for it with His blood if you're in Christ. And so many people then in their religious false humility come and say, well, that's awful bold to stand in the face of God and to say that you know your sins are forgiven. Isn't that just too arrogant? I mean, I don't really think that that's the right thing to do. I I think that, that, that we should have to work a little bit for our forgiveness. I think that we should have some suffering and some pain for ourselves in atoning for our own sin, paying it all. I think we should come before God with our works and say, here are the bad things I've done, God, but look at all the good things. All the while, the gospel tells us that the good things that we're going to hold before God are nothing better than filthy rags in His sight. There's only one real, honest answer as to why you might feel that way. There's only one real, truthful leveling of why you think it might be arrogant to be able to stand and say, I know I'm forgiven. And that is simply this, that you do not know the Word of God. That you're ignorant to the Gospel. That you can't see the glory of who Christ is and what He has done. How valuable He is and what He did in the shedding of His blood. You're still trying in your own strength. You're still relying on yourself. You're you're forgetting the infinite worth of Christ's sacrifice. And in light of that... In John's view, there's no point of telling you not to love the things of this world. There's no point of moving forward unless you know that all of your sin has been forgiven. There's no point in telling you to love the body well if you don't know that you have been forgiven in Christ. So the question this morning is, are you clear about this? Do you know that your sins have been paid in full? Are you resting in Christ and in Christ alone? Or do you think you're pretty good? You've filled a position in this church for a number of years and God must be pretty pleased with you. You've given a certain amount. You've done this. You've done that. You've read your Bible on an annual basis without fail for 40 years. So God must think you're pretty good and grant forgiveness on that account. Beloved, your forgiveness does not come because of your merits. That is a damnable lie. Your forgiveness comes by grace alone. So we know with joy this morning that we're not trying to earn forgiveness, that we're not trying to merit anything, that we come on the merits of Christ alone and we know that because of His infinite worth, we are forgiven. One. Two. 
Every Christian should know the way in which our sins in particular can be overcome. That is our putting to death sin in our life. Verse 13, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. He doesn't say here in verse 13, I'm writing to you that you may one day overcome, that you will overcome. He says you have overcome. So what does that mean? It means that to be a Christian is that the moment that we are united to Christ, we have victory in Christ. That that we know that we have victory over sin. That our sins have been forgiven. They're, They're linked here, these two verses. We are no longer in the dominion of darkness, but we have been transferred into the kingdom of His light. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Now positionally, because we are in Christ, we have overcome Satan. Not because of what we've done, but because we are united with him. We know that we have defeated in Christ the evil one. So he goes on to write to young men, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. First, he writes because he tells them you are strong. Well, how can you say that you are strong? Well, you can say that you're strong not in your own merit, but in relationship to Christ. We who are in Christ have been made strong in him. The second that we come into union with Him, the second that we turn in repentant faith to Christ, the second that we are born again by the power of the Spirit of God, we have access to the strength of Christ Himself. We've been made new and we are resting in Him and we are given new strength in Him. Beloved, what good is it if this morning we hear John's encouragement to flee from the world and to love the church, but we have no strength to do that? What good is it if, if, if we think that we can flee the world and love the church in our own strength? Uh, eventually, we'll run to the end of our strength in that pursuit. Even if we are genuine in wanting to flee the world and love the church, if we're doing it in our own strength, by our own power, we will find some point where we no longer love the church. We no longer love the body of Christ and we will turn back to the world. And that is the story of so many throughout church history. So many who have come to the church and they've claimed to be Christians and they say, I will follow God and I will love His church. But then it becomes too hard. And so they turn away and they love the world. And sadly, in our generation, there are many churches that they don't need anybody in the congregation to leave the church to love the world because they are leading the people in the congregation to love the world and not the church. You see, what we are finding in this verse is that we are strong because we have been made so. We have access to the strength that calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. We have all of the power of Christ as Christ is in us and we are in Him. And he goes on to say, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you, the Word of God grows in you, it further strengthens you, it gives you a whole new outlook on the world, it teaches you about what the world really is and what God's really calling you to do. 
James chapter 1, verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So often I think we look at sin. We look at, at, at the outcome of our sin as the judgment of God. But what we really need to understand that is that sin itself is the judgment of God. When people want to live for the world, and that's what John is encouraging us against, and we'll get into that next week. But when we long for the world, what we should realize is that the judgment of God is already upon us because we are in love with the world and not with Christ. And conversely, the blessing of God is that we begin to see the world for what it is. When we hear the word world, we understand it in its actual context. And we know that we are not to fall in love with all of the thoughts and the things of this life. And because God is blessing us to be able to see that what the, the sin in the world, we are able to run from it. Thomas Watson said that sin is the womb of all of our sorrows and the grave of all of our comforts. And here, what what John is teaching us is if the word abides in us, we will have clarity to be able to see with clear eyes what is sin and what brings glory to Christ. And this is ultimately what continues to strengthen us in our fight against sin. We actually see the enemy for who the enemy is. We don't want to bite and devour our fellow church members because we see that our fellow church member is not the ultimate enemy, but Satan and sin are the ultimate enemy. We see the ugliness, the hideousness, the selfishness of sin. And the word points to, to, listen friends, we have no, we have zero Authority to define what sin is. Only the Word of God has authority over the church of God to make definition of what sin is. There are so many people who want to take the offenses of our modern day society and reinterpret the words of God that we would call what the world calls sin, sin. That is very dangerous. The, the reason that John here says the word of God abides in you, he, and, and he can say that we are strong, is because we gain strength from a biblical perspective of seeing sin for what God calls sin. And it also then goes on to reveal the power of Christ, that Christ is the one who strengthens us, that he is the one that is beautiful, that he is the one that we seek to glory. And then he find, finally ends by saying, and you have overcome the evil one. We've overcome the evil one because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We have overcome the evil one when we come to the imperative to love the church and to hate the world, to run from the world, when, when those commands no longer are a burden. When we come to Christ and He gives us strength and grace in the battle, we no longer come to His commands and go, well, that seems really old-fashioned and outdated. That just seems like a burden. No, if we really have come to know Christ and, and, and we really are strengthened by Him and the Word is abiding in us, then when we come to the imperatives of His Word, we don't try to explain them away. 
We rejoice in the reality that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment and the one who has completed every command in our place. But then we have a joy of living in a way that we seek to honor what Christ has called us to do. It's only when we are in Christ that we see that we are strong enough for the commands of Christ. It's only when we come to right relationship with Him that we can even then begin to go on loving the church and running from the world. So one, we have to know that our sins are forgiven. Secondly, we have to know that we overcome sin by the power, the strength of Christ according to the Word of God. And finally, we come knowing that our greatest knowledge is not some superficial religious knowledge that the Gnostics had, but that our greatest knowledge is actually knowing Him. Knowing the Father. Knowing the One who is eternal. Knowing the Son. Verse 23, I am writing to you, or verse 13 rather, I am writing to you fathers because you know Him who was from the beginning. This is just a reiteration of verses 1 and three, one through 3 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us us that which was from the beginning which excuse me which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you the blessed knowledge that every Christian must have is a knowledge of the father and of the son our view of God beloved if we are in Christ is not that there is some great force in the universe our view of who God is is not that, there's a, that He's the big fella upstairs. I think that's one of the most blasphemous references to God. It's not just some impersonal force to get us to where we want us to go. This is a knowledge of a Father who has loved us with an everlasting love. This is a knowledge that our salvation is conditioned not on our performance, but on our Father's decrees. Our Father has begotten us through the Son. He has birthed us into the kingdom through His only begotten Son. He is a God who has saved us intimately and individually. And some will say, you know, Jay, I really don't think this matters. It doesn't matter if you believe that you choose God or God chooses you. I promise you it does matter. Because if you believe that it is in your choice to bring yourself to a holy God, I promise you, you will be the most priggish, self-righteous individual to walk the face of the planet. But when you realize that the only reason you are in Christ is by His free grace and His decrees, there is no room for pride. It is, it is humbling. It lays us low. The only reason that we worship Christ and not the world and that we love His body and not the world is because of His grace. It matters, I promise you. I don't know how many people I've had come to my office and say, I just disagree with you. And I'm like, whoa. Have I been preaching my ideas? And I will ask them, Point to in the text 
Where I have erred. Because I don't want to preach my view. I want to preach the Word of God. And they will say, but yeah, but I don't want to argue that. I just want you to understand, I've been in church my whole life. And a man sat in my office and say, I've been in church my whole life. And when you preach the gospel the way you do, it makes me question my salvation. And after all, if someone like me questions my salvation, do you hear it? That's pride. What does that do to everybody out here? That was the statement. That is the most arrogant hogwash ever in light of the glory of Christ. The only reason that you and I come and genuinely in the spirit of our hearts worship the triune God is because we have known the Father. And the only reason that we know the Father is that He first knew us before the foundation of time. He sat His love upon us. That is the heart cry of the church. That is what John is teaching us here. He has set his love upon us. The the Father has purchased us with the blood of his precious Son. He has set us free both from the penalty and the power of sin. He is molding us at this very very moment into the image of his Son. And he ultimately will call us to rule with his Son. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. If we died in him, we also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. This is the Father that we know. This is the one who is growing us. So his commandments then are not burdens his commandments are joy when we know that we have been bought by the blood of Christ according to the decrees of the triune Godhead before the foundation of the world laying down our finances our time our talent for the love of the brothers and the glory of God is not a burden it is a joy we don't do these things because Everybody in the body is right. We don't do these things because we all agree on every tertiary issue about the Bible. We, we don't love the body because we are really infatuated with the individual people's, people in and of themselves. We do it because we know we have been forgiven. Because we have been given the power to overcome sin. And because we know that the Father has loved us with an everlasting love. If you find it difficult to love the church, I want you to ask yourselves, am I really living on the reality that I've been forgiven, that, God, that Christ has given me the power to overcome sin, and that the Father has loved me with an everlasting love? And I promise you, if you come to those three truths and you meditate on them and you allow them to sink into, sink into your heart, loving the body of Christ will be all the more joyful. You see, I think what we've been taught in this passage clearly are the different stages that we go through in the Christian life. When we are young in the faith, we are comforted by the forgiveness of God. We, we come to God and, and we're amazed at the reality of the forgiveness that He has poured out towards us. We, we are just overjoyed knowing that we are sinners and that we've been forgiven. And we don't understand all of the decrees and all of these other things, but we do know that a righteous God has granted us forgiveness. We have been forgiven. I can remember the first 
semester of college, Sarah and I had bought our first new car. I thought we were really uptown. It looked like a clown car. It's like a pack of gum with four wheels. It was awful. And I got sideswiped in that stupid thing, and it spun like a top. I was praying, Lord, let this thing be um, totaled so that I don't have to drive it again. But when we first got it, I remembered, man, that is such a cool ride, you know. Because it was better than what I had in high school. It didn't have dents on every panel. Um, and I remember going, the point to the story is to the DMV. And I sat there with this lady trying to get personalized license plates that said forgiven. And what I know is this. There are a lot of people that think a lot of forgiveness in the state of Missouri. Because I tried to spell it out every which way. Redeemed to. None of those words worked to get a personalized license plate. And why was I doing that? Because in my young walk with the Lord, what really mattered, what I understood and what I could hold on to was the reality that I was forgiven. I couldn't boast about a great righteousness. I couldn't, I couldn't hold out a, a family of, of wonderful, um, godly people. But I could rest in the reality that I knew because of the blood of Christ, I was forgiven. That is the joy of being a young Christian. And I pray that as people who follow Christ that we never get beyond that great joy. But then as you continue on in your Christian life and you go a little bit further, you'll wake up and all of a sudden the joy of being forgiven turns into this reality that, uh uh-oh, there's a battle going on. A battle for holiness and a battle for the truth. And this battle isn't what I thought it was. That this battle doesn't yield results that religious men love. It's a battle that brings glory to the king out of the eyes of men. It's a battle to love your neighbor and to rise above your own pride and lay everything down for the glory of the one who bought you with his blood. What you find is that as you abide in the word and the word abides in you, you are made a little bit more, you are strengthened a little bit more for the next day's battle. You defeat enemies not by your own strength, but by His grace. And you grow to understand that the battle is never going to ultimately be won this side of heaven. That the battle will rage on and that you have been called to fight every day. But as you move on in your Christian life, you realize by His power you have overcome so much of the delusion of man-made modern religion. And you've overcome the evil one who has taken so many alive unto destruction. And there will be days that you lack wisdom and you lack the favor of the world and you will probably lack comfort and at many times and in many circumstances you will lack friends. But this is what John is saying. You will never lack for the power to go on in the fight. You will always be furnished with the strength of Christ to face a battle to glorify Christ by loving His church. And as you move on in in this Christian walk, you will find that the battle, again, isn't what you thought. It's not merely a battle for greater conquering of the culture with the gospel as many will have you to believe, although that's somewhat in view. You will realize that the true battle is to know Christ. To have deep fellowship with Him as John has written here in this letter. 
That all the things of this world grow strangely dim in light of His glory and grace. You will begin to see Jesus for who He is in His glory. And you will begin to lay aside some of the, the fights that you've been engaged in. And you'll lay them aside not because they're unimportant, but because you have been so captivated with the glory of loving Christ well. That these other things seemingly aren't as important. John writes again in verse 14, I I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. You know that there's coming a day, he's speaking to those who are more mature in Christ. You know there's coming a day where you will see Christ face to face. And in all of the battle that you have been through to understand his word and to live for his glory and to walk in light of his testimonies and statutes, you know that that day is the day that you long for, to behold him face to face. And and then you stumble upon Philippians chapter 3 and you realize that Paul was not just this super saint, although God used him uniquely. Paul was another fallen sinner who came to this point where knowing God was the most important battle of his life. As he writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. When, when he writes of the loss there, I think that people think of loss of the things of the world. I don't believe that's what Paul means. I think that he means, I count every battle I've been through as loss. I count every good thing I've done as nothing because I'm pressing on to something that is better. And that is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You see, Paul has moved from being a little child thankful for the grace and the forgiveness of God on to living out the battles that we find him fighting all throughout Scripture alongside of John. But then he comes to this, the magnum opus of his life, knowing Christ and being found in Him. You see, there's something that is so typical of us in our childhood And that is that we think more about gifts than anything else. I have five children and I promise you if you come down after the service today and ask them what is on their birthday list, you will be here for a while. They will give you the things that they want. And that's okay to a certain degree. But I also know this, as we grow in our lifetime, just as natural people, as we grow in our lives, we become less concerned with the gifts that we've been given, although they're important. And we become more enamored with the giver. We become more thankful for the one who has given us the gift. And so it is in the Christian life. We think back to all that he has given us, delivering us by his grace alone into the marvelous kingdom of the gospel. Giving us the victory to love others well, even if we are not loved well by them. Ultimately, we know that He is before us 
and that we will see him face to face. And all of the gifts of this life, whether they're family or fortune or fame, whatever the giftings are that God graciously bestows upon us, we begin to lay down. And we begin to long for the day when we will just behold him face to face because the giver outweighs the gifts exponentially. And as we realize that, we will come to these words and we will tremble at the precious promise that we've been forgiven, that we know we overcome sin as we abide in the word, and that we will come to know him in greater and greater measure all throughout our days into eternity, knowing that he is the author and the finisher of our faith, we tremble at these words. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for, my, for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one in him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning thankful for our forgiveness. We are thankful that you hold against us no sin. That all of our sin has been the wrath for, that we right, rightly deserved has been poured out upon Christ. We, we thank you that as Christians we stand today knowing that what you call sin has been forgiven through the merits of Christ and that alone. We know that we come to know you only by the working of your spirit. Your word tells us this. You spoke to Nicodemus and said that it's only if we are born again that we can see the kingdom of heaven. And you went on to explain, Father, that it is only um, that the wind blows where it wishes and that ultimately it's not of us. Our new birth is not our making. It's yours. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the joy of then being able to come and know you in deeper and fuller ways. And we're thankful that though the religious world and the secular world will rage against us who are in Christ, you will welcome us in eternally. Father, all of these promises give us a great foundation that we might run from the world and that we might cling to your church. Father, might it be true in this place that we would not merely be religious people, but we would be people rejoicing in the reality that you, by the working of your spirit, have washed us in the blood of your son, that you might receive.